And if you would, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we read from Isaiah 40 in the Old Testament, which are the scriptures that are given before Christ came. And we're going to take our scripture reading for our sermon from the New Testament, which are the scriptures that were delivered after Christ came, or really when he came. So we're in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse 22. Luke chapter 2, verse 22, we're going to read to 38. This is the word of the Lord. And when the time came for for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to tell us about your son who is the salvation of your people. And we pray that as it is proclaimed, as it is announced and heralded, I pray that it would be done so faithfully. And Lord, we pray that by it, your people would respond to it as the voice of their good shepherd. Would you accomplish in us today all those things that you first spoke these words to accomplish. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Jesus, now we're in the third week of Advent, the four weeks of of, uh, church services, the four weeks of Sundays that anticipate Christmas, and they are set up 
to symbolize the 400 years of waiting that the people of Israel waited without any new prophecies, without any new books of the Bible written, 400 years of silence waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of his people. We're in week three of Advent, and in our series, we've been looking at what the first Advent or the first coming of Jesus teaches us about the second coming of Jesus, the one that we are now looking forward to, because we look back on the first coming of Jesus, and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Now, here we are in Luke chapter 2. We've already read from Luke chapter 2 in our series, and Jesus was born. Jesus was born to his mother, whose name was? Who was Jesus' mother? Mary. Jesus' mother, Mary, and he was born in a pretty lowly place. He was born not in a mansion, not in a palace. He wasn't born in a hospital. He was born in a manger. A, chi- a, a, a trough, an eating trough for animals. And in that trough, or when he was in that trough, he was visited. He was very visited by some special visitors. While he was there, he was visited by shepherds who had seen angels saying, the Messiah is born, go check in the manger. And they saw him. And it was a glorious, lovely night filled with the skies, filling with the glory of God and angels announcing his coming. It was beautiful and wonderful and everyone who saw it never forgot it. But now we come to something that seems a little more ordinary. In fact, it was very ordinary. Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple because Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. He was Mary's firstborn child. She hadn't had any kids before him. And so there was a special thing that all the mums of Israel had to do when they had their firstborn kid. They would take that firstborn to the temple and they would dedicate that kid to the Lord. And this was supposed to remind them of what happened when they were first rescued from Egypt. Because you remember, all the firstborns were supposed to die in the land of Egypt. Every single one, every single family that had sin in it, which is every family, every single family that had sin in it, the firstborn was to die. Not the whole family, although the whole family had sinned, but the firstborn was to die. And God rescued the firstborn of Israel. Remember, he rescued them so that they didn't have to cry that their firstborn died. He gave them a sacrifice. He, gave, he said, you could kill a lamb instead of this son. And so every single time a woman had her firstborn, it was a real special occasion for this woman. It was a really lovely thing. Everybody celebrated it, but they realized, okay, because the Lord rescued our firstborns, we're going to offer a sacrifice, and God required them to do that. And so this was that special time celebrating. They had a firstborn, and they took Jesus to the temple. And there was two old people at the temple that day Two old people at the temple who were pretty ordinary old people. But they were people who were waiting really eagerly for the Messiah to come. They were waiting very eagerly for Jesus to come. They knew he would. They knew he would. And they were waiting. And the first one was a man named Simeon. Simeon, now sometimes when you're watching a movie or reading a book, it takes you back in time and then it flips you back to the real time. And so in our story, 
in, uh, in Luke's story here, in verse 26, it whips us back in time. Sometime before that, Simeon had been visited by the Lord, and the Lord told him, you're not going to die before the Messiah comes. So Simeon had a very special, he was very special in that way. He said, everybody else was, or a lot of people were waiting for Jesus to come, but Simeon knew it would happen before he died. And so now whip back to real time. And by the Holy Spirit, he knows now he has come. And he knows he's going to meet the Messiah. He's going to meet the promised king, the rescuer that God had always been promising. He knew the son of David, the great Christmas child, was going to be born. And he knew that he would meet him in the temple. And so he goes to the temple. And he rejoiced. He thanked God. He blessed God. He says, now I can die in peace. If I had nothing else in my life happen to me good, this would be enough. I've seen God's salvation. And he held God's salvation in his hands when he held Jesus in his hands. He was able to point to that child and say, this is God's salvation. Recently, I had a message shared with me that said, if we say that what Jesus did is our salvation, then that is a teaching straight from hell. Somebody shared a message that said that. That if you believe that what Jesus did is our salvation, that that's a message straight from hell. Well, apparently Simeon disagrees with this person. And Simeon would say, no, that's not a teaching from hell. That's a teaching from heaven to say that what Jesus did and who he is saves us. And now Simeon waited and he rejoiced because what he had always been waiting for had come. And then we get to meet another person, a woman named Anna. And Anna was a prophetess. Now, remember that hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Joel, he said, when the Messiah comes, when he comes, that you'll see a bunch of odd things happening that didn't usually happen before and wouldn't happen after. But when he came, you'd see something abnormal. You'd see old men getting visions and dreams, and young men. And you'd see old women and young women having visions and dreams. And we've already seen Mary had a vision of an angel. And now, to cap it off, we get Anna as a prophetess to show this is the Messiah has come. He's now coming. He's here. And this woman loved the Lord. She belonged to a people within Israel who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see that? That they were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They were waiting. Not everybody was in Israel, but they were waiting, and they were waiting very eagerly. And she rejoiced when she saw Jesus, the little baby. Now, kids, I want to say something to you guys, to everybody, everybody else can hear. Maybe lots of things you don't understand. That's fine. But you can understand and remember the most important things. You can remember the story. That when Jesus was brought to the temple, there were two old people waiting because they knew the Messiah would come and they were so happy that they got to see him. You can remember this. That before Jesus came the first time, there were people who were so excited and eagerly waiting for him. And sometimes they had to wait a very long time. But there were also some people who weren't waiting for Jesus to come. They didn't really want him to come. So they weren't happy. 
They weren't happy when he came. The Bible tells us that the people who were actually waiting for Jesus when he first came, they were looking forward to him coming because they knew they had sinned. They knew they broke God's law and they were really looking forward to God taking care of that. Someone finally to forgive them for their sin and not just to forgive them, but they were looking forward for someone to help them to stop sinning because they loved God and they didn't want to sin anymore. Something that Luke mentions for us is very important for us to notice. Notice the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph brought. Go back to Luke 2, if you're not still there. Luke chapter 2, what was the sacrifice that they brought? Did they sacrifice a lamb? They didn't. They sacrificed a couple of birds. Now, that might not strike you as odd, but I'll tell you what, in that day, people would have noticed People would have noticed this wonderful celebration. This woman has her firstborn and she's taking to the temple. They would have noticed that they're not, they're not bringing a lamb. They would have noticed and everybody would have noticed this. This might have been something that Mary and Joseph were even embarrassed about. We don't know, but it could have been something they were embarrassed about. Because offering birds instead of a lamb was a sign that you were poor. See, birds were not the sacrifice of rich people. Birds were not even the sacrifice of people who were doing okay, but not rich. The birds were given, were an option for a sacrifice if you were so poor that you couldn't afford a lamb. This was God's mercy in the Old Testament. No one could ever not afford a sacrifice. So both Anna and Simeon had been waiting a long time for this moment eagerly anticipating the consolation and redemption of God's people. And what they saw was a very poor Messiah. Helpless, small, poor. And notice that it didn't affect their joy at all. But many people did despise Jesus because he was poor. It was a different Messiah than what they were waiting for because the thing they look forward to the most is that the Messiah can solve my being poor problem or my I'm not rich problem. But these people were not disappointed when they saw Jesus. Him being poor didn't didn't matter because the issue that they were most concerned about was their sin problem. And that's the thing they most needed to be comforted for because of their sin. Dear church, the same It's going to be true at Christ's second coming, his second advent. There will be people who when he comes, it'll be, they might say they're waiting for him, but ultimately he'll say, you weren't waiting for me. You were waiting for a Messiah that was never promised to you. You weren't waiting for a Messiah who would take care of your sins. You didn't care about your sins. And the Lord gives us these words in Luke so that we might not be those people but be people who are actually waiting for the Lord Jesus coming. What troubled Anna and Simeon the most was the work of the devil all around them. It wasn't troubling to them that they weren't rich. They were looking forward to the Messiah who comforted them with the promise, I will take care of your sins. That's our first point. Be comforted by the removal of the consequences of sin. Be comforted 
by the removal of the consequences of sin. God had chosen a people, and the name was Israel. He chose them so that he would be their God, and they would be his people. He built them up. He gave them a land. He strengthened them. He gave them the temple. He gave them all the promises of the Messiah. He gave them wonderful things, and he gave them prophets to warn them, hey, if you reject me, if you rebel against me, you will lose this land. You will take it away into captivity. Brother Roger read for us from Isaiah 40 this morning. And Isaiah 40 is meant to be a comfort to the people of Israel because they were experiencing great trouble because of their sin, the consequences of their sin. God was sending enemy kings to destroy them and actually take them captive away from Israel. That was the consequence of their sin. And listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. To the people who had sinned so greatly against God, he kicked them out of their land. Listen to what he says to these sinners. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly, tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity, her sin is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord's hand, or she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He was reminding them, yes, that this captivity was actually because of their sin against God, because they had actually waged war with God. They had acted as God's enemies. Now, they didn't realize this. They didn't think this. They just thought, well, I'm just so disobeying God. I'm, I'm just ignoring God. But God says, sin is waging war against me. You have waged war against me. You've made yourselves my enemies. And God says, comfort them, telling them that's not the case anymore. The comfort was that God would keep a group of people in that people who loved God. And he would end that exile and bring them back. But before Jesus came back, after they returned from exile, they went off to Babylon and came back. But, when, but until Jesus came back, they were still under pagan empires oppressing them. They went from Babylon and Assyria and Syria, and they also had Greece, and now they were under Roman occupation. They had warfare with their enemies. And this warfare and this occupation was to remind them of something that happened many years before. See, when God first made humanity, Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, they were perfectly at peace with God. The world around them was a perfect place to live. But when Adam and Eve sinned, what they did is they rebelled against God and they made themselves at war with God. And all around them, the land changed. Everything around them, the land changed. It wasn't just that they were guilty, but the whole world was cursed and things were difficult. The world now had sin and, and it had death and it had a sickness and it had suffering. It had all these wicked, terrible, oppressive things in it. But God promises to comfort his people that this is not how it will be always be. There will be a day when the Lord Jesus returns and he will remove all of those things from the earth. And so we long for that day as well, brothers and sisters. And when he came the first time, he proved that he was the one to end all of that. 
It didn't happen immediately, but he proved that he was the one to do it by dying for sins and then rising from the dead. The Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, which means that what has happened to him not only will happen to all who trust in him, but will happen to all of creation. All of the world will be renewed and made new. All the consequences of sin will be eliminated off the earth. And that is meant to be a comfort to you, brothers and sisters. Because the first time he came, he actually came to prepare a people who would inherit that with him. Because if he had not died for our sins, if he had not come the way he had first come, he would have a lovely, beautiful world filled with all kinds of splendor and glory and goodness and joy. But there would be none of us there. Because he had not come to die for our sins. The first time he came, he came to take care of our sins so that we could be comforted that we will share in a world free from the consequences of sin. Our second point is that we are to be comforted by the pardon of sin. The pardon of sin, we can see that in, in, uh, in Isaiah 40. The comfort is that their sins have been pardoned. And I want you to notice that this is the comfort that Anna and Simeon were longing for. Both of them were a part of a group that longed for the consolation or the comfort. And that points back to Isaiah 40 and a number of other passages that their sins would be pardoned. To be comforted by this comfort, you must believe that you have sin. If somebody's going to say, hey, I have something great to comfort you with, some great news, that your sins are forgiven. If you don't believe you are a sinner, if you don't believe that you have sins, that's not going to be something that comforts you. How did the Lord pardon his people's sin? How did he pardon his people's sin? What was the comfort Did God send a messenger and say, oh, by the way, I've decided I don't care about sin anymore? No, that's not the comfort. Did God send a messenger and say, hey, God was upset, he was cranky, but he had a good sleep, and now he's not upset anymore. Was that the comfort? No. The comfort in Isaiah 40 is that he has paid double for their sins. Now, you might think, well, why would that be the case? The word is meant to be an exact copy a fold, a double, the exact copy of what their sins were, the exact punishment, the perfect match, a twin that the Lord had already punished that, had taken that punishment. And that is why the Lord Jesus came, dear friends, is not to announce, by the way, God doesn't care about sin. God doesn't punish sin. No, the comfort was that the exact punishment that his people deserve the perfect match the double of his of of their sin is exactly what the lord jesus took that's the comfort of the lord's first coming this baby that anna and simeon saw and held he didn't need to be rich to do this but he did need to be perfect without sin and so he did live a perfectly human life for all to see and for everybody to examine. And he did willingly die at the hands of both Roman rulers and the leaders of his own people. And on a cross, just outside of Jerusalem, 2,000-ish years ago, from noon until three in the afternoon, 
God took all the punishment, the perfect match of our punishment, and laid it on Christ's shoulders perfectly. And at the end of those three hours, he cried out, it is finished. He put the punishment of Christ for all the people who had trusted in Christ before he came and all who would ever trust in Christ after he came so that we can therefore now say there is no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. For all who trust in Jesus, our hope is that in the first coming, he pardoned our sin. So that as his second coming, we might enjoy total eternal life in a world which is free from the consequences of sin. And this is how we hope, how we wait for his coming. Our hope is not that we are guiltless. Our hope is not that we haven't sinned. Our hope is not by thinking that God doesn't care or that God doesn't send people to hell. Our hope is not because we've made peace with God. No, our hope is that though our sins were great, Christ paid for them perfectly on the cross. And that is how we can hope for the coming of the Lord Jesus. The third point is this. We are to be comforted by the removal of sin from the world. Now, for the ones who are waiting for the consolation of Israel, of Jerusalem, before Jesus came, They would not have been merely waiting for the removal of sin's consequences in the land they lived in. They would have been longing for the removal of sin from the world, from that land. They're not just longing for the removal of Roman soldiers or Roman taxes, but they're looking forward to the removal of Roman sin and Roman idolatry. They're not just looking forward to opening up their shutters in the morning to see a street without sickness and death, but they're also longing to open their shutters in the morning and see a world without sin. So that wherever you look or step, only righteousness dwells. Because this is the work of the devil. That they long to be comforted would be removed. A world where no one dishonors God. No one mocks him. Or no one disobeys him. That is what they long to be comforted. It troubled them to see sin wherever they looked. The Bible says this was true of Lot years before. It troubled them. Everywhere they look, they see sin, people rejecting God, disobeying God, and they long to be comforted by this. And the coming of the Lord Jesus promised them that this would one day be the case. If you see in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 13, we get this sense as well. This is what Peter says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of the coming of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, here it is, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A true hope in Jesus To be among the people who are actually waiting for the consolation of Jerusalem and Israel and the world is to be comforted with the promise that the world will one day be a place where only righteousness dwells. Peter tells us how that's going to be. Christ is going to return and everyone who's not covered by the blood of Christ will be removed from the world and thrown into the fires of hell. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. 
Not only the consequences of sin, but also the presence of sin. Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam joined with Satan's rebellion against the Lord to bring sin into the world. Satan sinned first, but Satan actually couldn't bring sin into the world because he wasn't the head of creation. Adam was, so he needed Adam to join with him to bring the curse of sin into the world. And Adam heard the gospel, a false gospel from Satan. The gospel, the good news. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be good news if sin was allowed? Wouldn't you prefer a world where there was sin than a world where there was no sin? And Adam believed that false gospel, that a world with sin is better than a world without sin. And so he joined Adam's rebellion. Adam should have banished Satan and sin, but he didn't because he wanted it. But not Christ, the better, the second, the last Adam. He came to destroy the works of the devil because he doesn't just hate sin's consequences, but he also hates sin. And this is what it meant for Anna and Simeon to be longing, to be waiting to be consoled, to be comforted by the coming of Christ, to be comforted by the promise that he would remove sin from the world. 1 Corinthians 13, there's a phrase that says, love does not delight in wrongdoing. Dear brothers and sisters, do you vicariously enjoy the sin of others that you know you can't do, but you kind of enjoy watching and seeing other people do them? Are there things that you enjoy right now that Christ has promised to comfort you by removing those things? You might rightly think that the world's confusion over sexual identity and gender is grotesque and you would long for a world without these perversions but at the same time are you enjoying heterosexual sin of the world while it lasts can you truly say that you need to be comforted by the promise that the lord will remove these sins from the earth or being honest would it make the new heavens and earth a little less enjoyable for you if sexual sin was removed This is a danger that we can all slip into. There's more sins that are involved. Are we enjoying the presence of sin now? This is a dangerous thing for us to do. Does this world cause you to long for Christ's return? Or have you agreed with the world that it's good to live in a world where sin is present? It makes the world more beautiful, more diverse, and we kind of like this. It would be wrong and bad if those things didn't exist. Which leads us right into our fourth point. Those who long for righteousness in the future, long for it now. We're going to close by looking at 1 John 3. Turn with, turn with me there, 1 John 3. Getting a sense of how it was that Anna and Simeon longed to be comforted to be consoled by the coming of the Lord's Christ. 1 John 3, first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know That when he appears, that's Christ, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself as he is pure. Dear friends, the Christian hope, the Christian longing and comfort is that when Jesus comes, we will be just like him. What does that mean? Does that mean we'll be able to walk on water? Does that mean that we will be able to be worshipped as God the way he is? No. Here John is not talking about those things. How will we be like him? In his purity. In his sinlessness. In having a heart that loves every and only what is good and pure and righteous. In systematic theology, this is called glorification. The day when we will be exactly like Christ in all the ways that a human can actually be. We will be sinless. We will be like Christ. We'll be exactly as humans were created to be, lovers of God, never sinning. Not only will we be in a world without the consequences of sin, not only will we be in a world without the presence of the sin of other people, we will also be personally without sin. Dear Christian, is this your longing? When you long to be comforted by Christ's return, is a large part of that that you will no longer sin. In addition to longing for the relief from enemies or sickness or death or poverty or fear, those are good things to long for. But do you also long for and ache? And are you comforted by the promise that you will one day be like Christ without sin? Because John says, everyone who has that hope will purify himself now as Christ is pure. So a person who says that they look forward to about heaven is the fact that there will be no sexual sin there. While feasting on and delighting in sexual sin now isn't making much sense. In the illustration, imagine a person who hates hockey, never plays it, has great opportunity to play it, could play it any day, all day, every day. They hate it. They never play it. But imagine that they would say, the thing I look forward to one day is to be able to play hockey nonstop. That would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Or imagine a person who absolutely hates coconuts. Absolutely hates coconuts. Last thing in the world that they would eat, they make them gag. A person who says that, I hate coconuts, they make me gag. And then you ask them, what are they looking forward to about their upcoming trip to Mexico in a week? Oh, I can't wait to eat nothing but, but coconuts. You see how bizarre that is. This is what John is saying. He made it clear that the one who has no sin is a liar, not a Christian in, in uh, the chapter before that. And he warns us that sinning is forbidden, but he also gives us the comfort that if we do sin, we have a high priest who is paid for our sin. And not only that, he also cleanses us when we come to him for cleansing. Because a Christian longs for righteousness. Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. In the language of Luke, it means that we are to be consoled. In the language of Isaiah, we are to be comforted. This comforts us that we long for righteousness. Not the righteousness just of other people, but of ourselves. Both Anna and Simeon were waiting for the consolation of their land, of their people. And in great measure, that meant that they were longing to be comforted, that one day they will not have sin anymore. So what does it mean for us now 
to live lives that reflect our longing to be sinless one day. It means that we can also be comforted by his promise that you can obey him now. He has promised that for all who trust in him, he has given his Holy Spirit so that though it may feel like you cannot stop sinning, though it may feel like the greatest joy would be for you to continue to sin, it is not true. And he has promised that if you belong to him, he will always give you the opportunity and strength to obey him. This should be a comfort to you, dear Christian. Not simply that your sins are just forgiven, but also he can comfort you when you feel like you cannot do anything but sin. He brings that comfort, the present comfort now that no, you don't have to sin even now. I will help you. I will help you. It might be that you're at a place with your own sin that it feels like you have almost no desire to obey. But dear Christian, do you, do you have the desire to desire it? Would it be your desire to not desire sin anymore? Is that something you think would be better? Do you actually, when you think about it by being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you actually think about it, is sin actually a better master than Christ? No, it's not. Is this sin for me or is it against me? It's against me. Is Christ for me or is he against me? He's for me. Will this sin lead to good things and glory and eternal life? It won't. Will Christ? He will. If you have even that and you want to want righteousness, dear friends, consider that like a smoldering wick of a candle. Consider that to be a smoldering wick of a candle that is still there. There's some smoke rising and you can see faintly a little bit of a red flash in that wick. Take that as a sign of life from the Lord. And don't run away from that to sin and say, well, I'm just going to embrace that. Run away from sin to Christ because in Isaiah, two chapters after Isaiah 40, where he says, comfort, comfort my people, he says these words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, this is Jesus, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Dear Christian, with the desire for God that seems only like a desire to desire him, which seems like a faintly burning wick. Be consoled. These are God's words of comfort to you and let them comfort you. The comfort is that sin is not inevitable. You can be made holy by Christ. He will not turn you away, even if that's all you've got right now. But come to him that he would fan that faintly burning wick into a flame. He is the lover of your soul. The people who say sin doesn't matter are not. No one has died for your sin except Christ alone. So be comforted by his words that he has paid for your sin. One day you will be without sin and now you can live in righteousness. And when you fall, it doesn't have to be forever. Turn, run to him for forgiveness and also for cleansing. And he promises that he will turn away no one. No one, no one, no one.
Dear church, let us be comforted by the words that our Savior came to deal with our sin. 1 John 3, 1 to 3, I'm going to read it again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you gave us the Messiah that we needed rather than the one that we wanted. The one who would come to deal not just with the sins of other people, but with our own sin. And we thank you that you gave us a Messiah to live in our place and to die in our place and rise from the dead so that we might no longer be controlled by sin and condemned by it. Lord, I thank you, and I pray that you would make us a people who are waiting for you, longing, and who are comforted as we long, that our sins are now forgiven, that one day we will not have any sin, and that even now when it feels like we must sin, the comfort is no, we do not have to. And I pray that we would walk as your children now, flawed as it may be, Lord, I pray that you would make us continually repenting, eager to be cleansed by our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would work this in us in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's